This is exactly right. On the 12th season of Tenfold More Wicked, we investigate a series of compelling mysteries from the city of Fall River, Massachusetts, where problems started generations before Lizzie Borden's murders made her a household name. Join me as we cover the misfortunes that have befallen this infamous town for more than 150 years, including the Great Fire of 1843. Season 12 premieres Monday, May 13th on Exactly Right. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the premium episode of Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan, also known as Sitting Down with Dr. Dan. Hard to believe it's almost November, and we are so glad to have you as part of our Stitcher Premium family. A reminder for premium subscribers, only every month, Stitcher Premium releases a new Parent Footprint Sitting Down with Dr. Dan episode, where I answer your listener questions about parenting, therapy, and much, much more. And I'm joined here today by our amazing audio engineer and dad, Phil Rossi. Hello, Dr. Dan. Phil, let's talk about listener questions. What do we got? So we had some great questions uh, come in for this week's episode. It's been fantastic uh, to see questions coming in. And I think it's a sign that our, our community continues to grow and we just encourage folks, if you've got a question for Dr. Dan, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us via social media or via email at podcast at drdanpeters.com. So that's your homework. If you've got a question, take a minute, even hit pause on this podcast and, and send us an email because we love engaging the community. And with that said, uh, let's dive in with question number one, which is a really important question that we received via email. A listener asked about fostering children and being a foster parent. Specifically, if we can do a future regular episode on this topic, which I'm happy to say our producer, Laura, has already said yes, and we're working on putting that episode together. Uh, But for today's episode, we've got more of a general question for Dr. Dan on this subject. So Dr. Dan, where can people interested in fostering get information on how to get started? Mm Mm-hmm. And then it's a two-part question. I'll let you answer that first part, and then I'll, I'll jump in with part two. Okay. So first off, this is, this is really important because there are so many kids that need loving, stable, safe homes. Um, and so organizations and communities and counties, states are always looking for foster parents. Uh, So some things to know is that a great place to start is with your local county health and human services department. Um, Usually there's a social services department and they either will have a foster care component to their department or they will be partnering with other nonprofits in the area. The other thing to be aware of is that 
people need to be sort of authorized, trained, certified to become foster parents. And these various organizations offer those certifications. Um, so one place, first place is um, Health and Human Services, uh, your local Health and Human Services. The other thing, uh, there are some great websites, some organizations I want to share. There's uh, Adopt US Kids which also talks about foster care. There's the National Foster Parent Association. And there's also the North American Council on Adoptable Children. So those are just a few of uh, resources that I would suggest looking into. So being a foster parent clearly is both equal parts rewarding and challenging. Do you have any advice for individuals who would like to embark on this journey. Yes. Um, well, you just served it up, summarized it really well, Phil, because um, it is rewarding. Um, and what many foster parents will say is the most um, important part of their lives and also some of the most challenging parts of their lives because many foster kids come from situations that were less than optimal, um, often chaotic, um, trauma, um, domestic violence. There's several reasons that kids become foster care when their parents are unable, seen unable or um, unfit or it's unsafe to care for them. So these kids come in um, scared and they often come in traumatized. And so there are attributes that are thought of um, when we think of what makes a successful foster parent. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about a few of these. Um, having empathy and good listening skills, having perseverance when things get tough, being flexible and adaptable, having patience and a good sense of humor is very important. Uh, Stability and consistency in your own personal and family life. And part of that is making sure that everyone in your family is on board. Um, for this uh, endeavor. And this is really important, an ability to guide and discipline children without the use of physical punishment um, because that is not okay. It's not something that um, uh, is allowed and it's definitely something that we don't want to repeat, particularly on the kids that have suffered physical uh, abuse. Um, other, Other things to think about is It's for parents who can live in the present. And the reason this is important is because the moments can be hard and it's about being in those moments and trying to focus on incremental progress, incremental change, incremental growth, like really is the baby steps model. Um, The other thing is, you know, we talk a lot about awareness on this show. Um, When you're in a foster parent situation, you experience a lot of rejection because it's part of the process of what a child brings from their own past and the confusion and some of the reactions. And so it's really important for a future foster parent or a current foster parent to try to separate what a child is bringing and not personalize things that can sound and feel very personal. Yeah. 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 It's funny. I, read my mind a little bit on that. I think uh, the ability and it's, you know, I, I think it's in a lot of ways a, a, a learned skill 
but it's that capacity for self-kindness. And in mm-hmm. those moments where things aren't going so well, to be able to be kind to yourself and say that you are putting forth your best effort and that's all you can do. And to be a good coach, you know, internally to yourself in those moments, I think would be a pretty important skill mm-hmm. to work on. Yes. Um, and with that is the tolerance of one's own negative and ambivalent emotions that comes with, um, well, first of all, parenting um, and, and, and foster parenting. And, you know, I'll, I'll just close by saying, um, having in the past worked for a large nonprofit that um, had a foster care program and meeting the foster parents and hearing the stories of the foster kids, um, and particularly those who had um, grown up and remained connected, such powerful relationships and important relationships and how um, both parties talk about these experiences um, changing their lives. Great. I think that's a great, great way to summarize and and bring advice to a topic you could probably do hours and hours worth of content on. Oh, you know, speaking of hours and hours, let me just give one more tidbit here that I that I failed to mention um, by way of diseducation to folks because people think of foster care, I think, as this big general thing. And mm-hmm. there's different types of foster care. So, like, so people have different options. There's respite care is a type of foster care. And that's when respite care is when the parent needs a break. So foster parents uh-huh. come in as, you know, to give a, a foster parent a break. There's emergency or urgent care. Um, so on call when there are crises or people are needing placement. So that's short term and it's, you know, you don't know when it's coming, but you're there in those really pivotal times. Mm-hmm. There's kinship care, which is when a family member, a biological a family member, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, um, f- foster parents for a time being. Uh, there's therapeutic or treatment foster care, which is a higher level of care to help kids who are dealing with more emotional and behavioral challenges, um, usually related to uh, post-traumatic stress. And then finally, there's the foster to adopt, which is a path that many folks go in with, with the notion of, I want to foster a child to ultimately right. adopt. Well, that's great. Thanks, thanks for that add-on there. I think that's um, absolutely useful information. I'm glad we uh, we were able to get to that. All right, question number two, another question via podcast at drdanpeters.com. The email was really heating up this this week, I guess. So uh, this comes uh, from overseas, as a matter of fact. So the email says, Dear Dr. Dan, I'm a graduate student in France and watched a Dr. Dan video about taming the worry monster and anxiety in gifted children. And I'd like to ask a question about generalized anxiety disorder and OCD. I did an IQ test a few years ago after I had a bad time in high school and I had a heterogeneous IQ at the end. So the psychologist said we couldn't conclude I was gifted, but since I have all the symptoms of gifted, I educate myself about the topic. I also have OCD. And my question is, what kind of help should I try to get? Treatment for OCD? Or should I try to work with someone who specializes in gifted populations? Mm-hmm. That's an excellent question. And there's a lot in there that I, uh, I want to unpack. First of all, for everyone listening, um, so giftedness, you know, what is giftedness? So the idea of giftedness is that 
is where people who have cognitive or intellectual abilities, academic abilities, visual performing art abilities, um, athletic abilities, um, even leadership abilities that are well beyond the norm or what we call neurotypical. So if you think about a bell curve, they tend to be on the highest two ish percent or more. Some people mm -hmm. say the highest 5% or more. Um, when we think of percentages, that's where these IQ tests come in. Mm -hmm. And something that this um, listener experienced, what he's talking about is a homo uh, heterogeneous IQ test. That basically means that a lot of the index scores um, were kind of, um, they were, I don't want to say flat, but they basically there's an overall IQ score generally called a full-scale IQ. Yeah. And what happens is all of the other index scores, whether they're high or they're low, get collapsed into a single score. Okay. What this means is that this score was below, you know, it wasn't out of the ordinary. It was below the cutoff for gifted is what it's sounding like. And this is really important for people to understand um, who are in this world. And that is that gifted individuals tend to be highly what we call is asynchronous in their development, have very high abilities, have very typical abilities, and sometimes have um, lower abilities or less developed abilities. So what happens is if you have very high verbal reasoning and then you have a visual spatial processing deficit or you have a working memory challenge, you can have super high scores and medium scores or low scores, and then you'll get one full-scale IQ score that says, no, you're average or you're above you're, average, right, you're not right. gifted. So what I would say is just because you really want to look back at the scores and there are many ways to pull out scores that can qualify as gifted, um, which links to it's not all about the scores. So as this uh, listener wrote in, has all of the symptoms or we say characteristics of giftedness and there are various characteristics um, that go with this profile of a lot of intensity and sensitivity and strong memory and early vocabulary. And there, I mean, the list can go on. Mm -hmm. um, and some of these folks do also experience anxiety and OCD, um, which um, is not uncommon to go along with a gifted profile. Right. Um, so all this is to say, um, ideally... Like, ideally, if there was a practitioner who understood giftedness, who also had experience in anxiety and OCD, um, that would be my number one. Like, that's the ideal. And the reason it's important to have um, someone who understands giftedness is because a lot of gifted traits can be seen, uh, can be pathologized as a problem right. when right. it's actually part of the personality. Right. right. No, that makes great sense. So, you know, I, yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go well, ahead. I was going to say, you know, it, it, it occurs to me too that with these tests, you know, this is all quantified information based on, you know, numerical values on how you performed in the test. And then there's variables that can impact that. And so I think, you know, for a person to maybe not rely so much on the that diagnostic test, but the their experience yes. in in the world and in their life experience, I think is is something that's important for them to consider. And that's why I think your your advice on seeking you know a a therapist or, or a professional that is uh, has expertise in those areas would be a great way one to to learn more about that, but also probably 
may help set this person at ease a little bit too and and not be so focused on these different labels that come through these tests. Yes, absolutely. And and helping them understand themselves through the gifted developmental lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's ideal. But so now let's go into practical because unfortunately, um, there is not enough practitioners out there who have this type of training um, and internationally in particular, um, you know, there's not enough in the States, but particularly internationally as well. So what I would say then taking it to the next step is we know that OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder can be quite debilitating. And also that cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, is mm-hmm. one of the most effective treatments um, for OCD. And so I would say if you can't find the person that does both, I would suggest going towards an expert in OCD so you can get um, relief and coping yeah. skills uh, to try to reduce the impact of that process in daily life. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And I would also think too that that the the tool set you build with working with cognitive behavioral therapy, it's not a one size fits all. So it it will apply to other areas of stress that might be impacting you beyond what you experience from OCD as as well. Exactly right. And um I think it's worth just telling everyone a little just quickly about what how CBT works because people hear about CBT all the time and mm-hmm. doctors talk about hey you need some CBT so basically the cognitive behavioral model think of a triangle and on the top part of the triangle you have cognitive or thoughts on another corner of the triangle you have emotions and on another the third side of the triangle you have behavior And the whole idea is, if you can change your thinking, it changes your emotions about how you feel, and then it changes your behavior and how you respond. Also, if you can change your behavior, actually do something that you were afraid of, it changes the way you think about it, which then changes the way you feel about it. So there's multiple doors to go through for us Mm -hmm. to change our behavior. And one of the first things is, hey, what am I thinking? Is this true? Is this valid? Um, can, I, can, I, can I question this? Can I talk back to it? Can I change my thinking around it? Right. And particularly with OCD, um, one of the, big, the biggest interventions is what we call um, either exposure, which you expose yourself, this is behavior, you expose yourself to the feared stimuli. So for example, right. dirt, <laughs> or um, a swimming pool, or an elevator, or anything that's fearful. Um, But there's fancy term called response inhibition, because we know what we call the OCD monster. He tells us if we don't turn off the lights a certain amount of times, or wash our hands a certain amount of times, something bad is going to happen. Yeah, right. And response inhibition is, okay, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't reinforce it. Because every time we do it, it makes us feel relaxed for a moment, but then it comes back and gets Mm -hmm. stronger and stronger and stronger. My understanding as well is that with OCD, it's not always about 
these rituals, but it can be more toward the obsessive side of, mm-hmm. of this disorder, whereas where a lot of it um, is internalized. And so there might not be those rituals or maybe those haven't um, developed yet. And I think that's where CBT can be a very powerful tool is if you get diagnosed early as well, you, you might avoid then some of the, some of those more ritualistic type behaviors like the hand washing is just one of those um, examples. Yes, you're exactly right. And for a lot of folks, uh, we're not sure we we really have OCD or we have OCD tendencies because you just only mm-hmm. know you only know what you know you only think right. how you think, um, right. and for our kids that might have it, um, it's usually something that spe- you spend a lot of energy hiding uh, the thinking and hiding the behavior. Right. Um, oh yeah. 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 Absolutely. I mean, especially depending on the age group too. For mm-hmm. teenagers, adolescents, for example, mm-hmm. you know they are not. <laughs> They're not known for uh, their um, verbose communication skills when you ask them what's going on and, and will they even volunteer information? Very mm-hmm. likely not. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> That's great, great, um, again, coverage of a, of, a, of, a deep, of a deep topic. Okay, question number three is from social media, both Twitter and Instagram. Several listeners have asked us about your being an author, Dr. Dan. And specifically, uh, they want to know if you are working on a new book, what that title might be, the audience it's catered toward, and can it help all parents? So I uh, recently do have a new book out that I co-authored with a colleague of mine, Dr. Jean Peterson. So we have Peterson and Peters. Um, and that book is called Bright Complex Kids Supporting Their Social and Emotional Development. So this book um, comes from my uh, decades of experience and Jean's multiple decades of experience um, working with and researching these kids. And what we wanted to do is put together a user-friendly guide for all care uh, all caretakers, um, everyone who's a stakeholder who cares about a bright kid. And um, we use the word bright because gifted is limiting. Not everyone gets the gifted label. And as we heard from the previous question, there are lots of bright people that don't get tested or don't get the score or don't get recognized. And so it's more of a looser, a bright child. And when we think about these kids, we think about them as being a little different. Like you notice that their development is different. They are doing things earlier. They're thinking different things than their peers. They're able to understand things differently or put things together differently. There's often more sensitivity, more tr- can be more trouble connecting with same age peers. Um, and then there are academic needs that um, these kids have, depending on where their strength is. And so what we wanted to do is who, write about who are they, how do we find them, and how do we support their emotional, social and emotional health? Because often when there is when these kids are talked about, what's usually talked about is their um, academic growth, their intellectual uh-huh. and academic growth. Uh-huh. And what's missed is the whole child, as Gene and I have talked about for years, the whole child of who this, who the, their well-being, their mental, their emotional, their spiritual well-being. And, and, and with that, what happens is you can get um, a lot of underachievement. Um, kids that... Um, 
sort of check out kids that don't see the value of education, kids who give up on the system. You see overachievement, perfectionism, people who feel like the only way that they're going to continue to get the accolades and be smart is if they perform at an uber level in everything. Yeah. Uh, depression, anxiety, um, uh, uh, existential depression, we write about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And misdiagnosis and uh, parenting. And um, so we really try to, we cover, we cover the gamut and it's, um, and who's it for is, um, it's really for anyone who cares about um, these kids uh, or knows someone who is one of these kids and wants yeah. to understand how to support them more. That sounds... That sounds amazing. You know, I think um, you, they do process different and, and their level of awareness, right, may be higher, but it, that might not match up necessarily with their emotional maturity. And I think that can at times also create this, uh, this cognitive kind of dissonance that yes. leads to this anxiety. And I think this sounds like a great you know, a great resource for parents to, again, have a better understanding of, as you just, as you described mm-hmm. it and your co-author described it as the whole child. You know, and you're reminding me of a talk I did years ago and um, a father was there about his child. And then after the talk, there was some Q&A and he shared that he was one of these people and that when he was in high school and college, he always felt that he was both too young for everyone and also too old for everyone. He didn't yeah. understand all of the social stuff and was what everyone was into. He didn't understand um, all the social stuff and what everyone was into. And he also was so beyond them in the mat- level of maturity and what he was thinking right. about. Right. And he, he said he didn't catch up until like the end of college or started yeah. to catch up. And, yeah. And, yeah. and so you're exactly right. It creates a lot of anxieties, um, which speaks to our the second question from our listener. And I want to um, talk about a few of my other books, which... Um, are are more broad based and not just yeah. focused on yeah. bright. Yeah. And so, um, the second uh, the listener from the second question uh, talked about the worry monster. Uh, and so, the worry monster is a is a fictional character which I write a lot about. So, I have the Worry to Warrior series, um, and there is a book for adults which is Make Your Warrior a Warrior. There's a book for um, elementary to teenager kids, which is from warrior to warrior. And then there is a workbook for younger kids called the warrior workbook. And those books start at the beginning of about how our brain and body works and why we have the fight and flight response. So we can really understand ourselves as human beings. And this mythical creature of the worry monster is an idea through narrative therapy, which is we take the problem from out, we remove it from being inside a person. I am anxious. And instead we put it at the worry monster is making me scared. And we get some space and the whole goal is to team up on this monster by using cognitive behavioral mindfulness-based strategies and really a way of demystifying the power of anxiety on all of us. Yes, yes, I love that. I mean, that's such a critical skill because... I think it's safe to say everyone at some point in their life is going to feel 
like this worry monster, you know, has them pinned and, and is right up in their face. And to be able to create that space by identifying that anxiety, that worry that you're feeling, taking it out of your body, as you said, uh, is just such, such a powerful skill, such a powerful skill. And I think the younger, um, that people can learn that skill. I mean, you can learn at any time in your life, but if we are educating ourselves on this subject and able to one model it for our own kids, but also Mm -hmm. be Mm -hmm. able to provide that, you know, the guidance to them in, in terms of how they, they can manage these very often oppressive feelings at an earlier age, then that's setting them up for being able to do this more easily in life. Because it's like, it's, it's like any skill. It's like mm-hmm. the guitar, the piano, right. or, or lifting weights and, you know, your muscles get stronger. You, you, the repetition, it becomes a bit more effortless. I'm not going to say there's ever zero effort involved, right. but it becomes easier to make that space the more that you do it. You're exactly right. And, um, you know, we're, we're basically talking about resilience. So learn these coping skills for anxiety, um, is real, are really the same skills as learning to become resilient. Um, having a metacognition awareness of our thinking, creating action plans, knowing that there's always a solution. And so when you talk about, um, this is like any other skill, I agree with you. And I'll also even, go beyond that and say, when we're talking about resilience, um, in my experience as a parent, in my experience as a human, and in my experience as a um, psychologist, having the skill of resilience is the skill to have because with resilience, anything then is possible and you can deal with anything that comes your way. Yeah. And would you say that everyone is capable of resilience? Absolutely. And I think Absolutely. that's a very, I think that's a very important message out there because I'm sure there are listeners out there saying, no way, mm-hmm. not me, yeah. impossible, but it's not. And that's so important. Yes. Yes. Um, one final, uh, final book um, that I co-authored is called uh, Raising Creative Kids with my colleague, friend and colleague, Dr. Susan Daniels. See the pattern there? We got a Peters and a Peterson <laughs> and a Daniel and a Daniels. Um, but I want to say that book is the new version is coming out. We're hoping in the next two to three months under a new title called boosting your child's natural creativity. So wait for that one. Sounds like another great addition for the library. Well, Dr. Dan, it looks like we have just about reached the end of our time here. This, as always, it goes by way too fast. It does. And we appreciate, as you said, Phil, everyone's questions. Um, We love engaging with you and um, please keep sending them to us. All right. Um, So you know what to do. Please continue to listen to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan, where you know we have new shows every Thursday, as well as the Stitcher Premium Bonus episodes every month. Follow us at Parent Footprint Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. As Phil said, you can also get more information on www.drdanpeters.com. And as always, please rate, review, and subscribe 
and do the thing I do every day. Ask myself the question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Mountain Spring High, composed and performed by Gabriel Lewis. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.